Oh my goodness. Ladies and gentlemen, March is back. Wow. Uh, that is the only word I have to describe what we experienced this last weekend in Indianapolis. I mean, I am just beyond ecstatic that we got to have the March Madness tournament this year. I don't know if there is any greater venue for sports than this tournament. As a basketball fan, I think this has got to be the top of the line, the best venue, um, and just crazy, crazy games this year. I think we knew we'd have that happen with so many conference games. We were going to see these teams that were possibly misseeded. And it's just, it's been really crazy. I got to give a shout out here to Jaden Verhage taking the UCSB Gauchos for the championship. And they lost the first round, but that was a tough, tough call. Jaden, I'm sorry you're out. I also had Kyle Ott here on the podcast a while back. He said the Michigan Wolverines are going to get it done. And hey, they're still hanging around after their close call against LSU this week. But but wow, there's just so much to talk about this week from the March Madness Tournament. And fortunately for me, I get to have a high school friend along on this episode. His name is Grant Case. He goes to Mount Mercy University over in Iowa. And yeah, we're just going to talk a lot uh, about a lot this week. Uh, first, I want to start with some of those playing games. If any of you saw the attention that Tom Izzo got for that quote-unquote heated exchange with his player, Gabe Brown, I mean... This isn't the first time Tom Izzo has been the talk uh, for his authoritative coaching style, one might say. But uh, yeah, I want to get Grant's take on that. And then we're going to be talking about some of the most impressive moments so far in March because uh, there's just been so many great moments. We have to mention some of them uh, before this weekend when we get to Sweet 16. Uh, another thing I want to talk about, West Virginia lost for several reasons. Uh, I was never sold on them out of the Big 12 anyways, but... There's an interesting idea about a rule we might need change, and I'm going to talk about that one with Grant. Uh, we're also going to be talking about the not-NCAA property movement uh, by Isaiah Livers, Geo Baker, and Jordan Bohannon, which is getting quite a bit of fame right now, um, and also just the equal rights issues with uh, Title IX and the female tournament. The, the NCAA is kind of under fire right now from these athletes, and they're not afraid to voice their opinion. Uh, finally, Grant and I are going to hit on Sister Jean and those Loyola Chicago boys, and they are not going anywhere. They weren't going anywhere last time they were in the tournament, and they're definitely not going anywhere this year. I mean, Cameron Crutwig, phenomenal player, and just the coaching. I mean, I, I, I haven't seen – I'm only 20 years old, so I know I haven't seen the greatest basketball ever, but that was one of the most nearly – that was just like a flawless game – Perfect coaching, spacing the floor defensively. I mean, they took down Kofi Coburn. They made Io DeSumo. They forced so many turnovers. It was like the Illinois team was just befuddled. They didn't know what to do. And this is a quality team. I don't care what you want to say about the Big Ten. I knew that the Big Ten wasn't as great as everybody thought they were. But this Illinois team is legit. So I, I don't want to hear any naysayers about that because this coaching out of Loyola was very impressive. And then finally, we're going to get to the take it or leave it section with Grant. He's going to rank his teams who are left. We're going to get his top four teams left in the bracket and his bottom four teams left in the bracket. The ones he's going to take, the ones he's going to leave. I mean, it's March. It doesn't get any better than this. We got the Masters coming up in April. We got so much to talk about. This is, this is going to be a thrilling episode. You'll want to stay tuned. I'm your host, Dalton Mogul, and this is Take It or Leave It.
Thank you for tuning in to the Yip Podcast Network. This is a collection of student-created podcasts from Nebraska Wesleyan University. All of these shows are written and edited by current students who attend NWU. To be in the loop for podcast debuts and upload dates, follow us on Twitter at NWU Yip Yip. And of course, go P-Wolves! Everyone, thanks for tuning in. So like I said earlier, uh, yeah, I have a special guest here, Grant Case, a high school friend of mine. Uh, we go way back. Grant was on the golf team at York High School with me, and uh, he also played tennis in high school. But uh, yeah, Grant, just uh, let everybody in, uh, fill in a little bit, give us your expertise, why we should trust you being on the podcast today. Yeah, I mean, I'm really excited to be here. Huge sports fan in general, but especially this time of the year. I just love March Madness and really diving into stats and details and predicting matchups and seeing which teams have the best shot to take it all at the end. And I, I guess I forgot to mention Grant is a huge Suns fan, big, big Devin Booker guy. Um, I mean, we could touch on the fact that they went 8-0 in the bubble last year and didn't get in, but <laughs> I don't want to bring it up. That's probably a touchy subject. Anyways, uh, I want to get started here with this first first thing um and that's tom Izzo in this in this heated exchange he had with gay brown right at the end well at halftime in that game against ucla and if anybody hasn't seen this video basically gay brown looks like he missed a screen or a switch there uh before halftime and he was kind of talking back to tom Izzo as he made his way off the floor and tom Izzo kind of grabbed him like grabbed the back of his arm and he kind of turned around and they were yelling at each other and then they walk a little further and then Gay Brown turns around again to kind of confront Tom Izzo. And like lots of people had lots to say about this, of course, because, um, you know, everyone has something to say nowadays with social media. So Tom Izzo obviously has this authoritative coaching style. This is like, was that two years ago we saw him in March? He was he was yelling at a player. He got brought to the news. Like everybody was talking about Tom Izzo. Like this is just the way he coaches. He has that my way or the highway mentality. And after the game, the media asked him about it, and he called it a normal nothing uh, between him and the player. I mean, what were your thoughts? Were you watching this game, Grant, come down? Um, did you see this moment? In Arizona on spring break with my roommate, and we were both watching the game. And uh, it was odd. I've never really seen anything like that before, especially going into half. It makes you question whether or not the uh, UCLA run in the second half was propelled by maybe a weak Michigan State locker room because of this incident. Yeah, because this they were Michigan State was actually up eleven. Yeah. And after this, like they were up big, and Tom Izzo just kind of gets in his face. I know Draymond Green responded on Twitter saying like. This isn't a big deal. This is how Tom Izzo coaches championship basketball. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I think Tom Izzo's record speaks for itself. He's a high, He has high accolades as a coach, and he's done a lot of impressive stuff. But, yeah, I just wanted to touch on that, that incident with Gabe Brown because it was kind of all over the place last week. Um, obviously, Michigan State didn't make it into the tournament. They lost that playing game to UCLA, who's still alive. Uh, just a quick impression. What were your thoughts on the Big Ten here in the tournament? Only Michigan remains after this. Uh, what do you think? You know, we kind of see it every year from the Big Ten, especially come tournament time. But I think this year especially, 
there's one thing that I could really think of as to why the Big Ten's failure in the tournament. It's the strength of the Big Ten itself this year. I mean, for most of the year, you had five or six top 25 teams at a minimum. I know there were upwards of like eight at times. So maybe if they're just beating each other up in conference play, then they aren't really as energized or more injured than the other conferences that could play a big role. I agree. Yeah, that that definitely was something um, lots of Big Ten haters out there after this last weekend. But um, I don't know. I don't think anyone should dog on the Big Ten and the success they had this year. It's just um, I was a person who didn't think they'd go very deep in the tournament because, like you said, they just beat up on each other all year long and finally got to tournament time and they just they weren't peaking at the right time. All right. So, that, yeah, so that was kind of the, the talk about Tom Izzo there. But now I want to touch on some of the most impressive moments we've seen so far in March. The first one that I could think of when I started writing out this list was Arkansas' 17-0 run there to end the half against Colgate, who was their power ranking was 15th in the country, which is kind of hilarious with how that all worked out. They were 15-1. and one. Um, cause they didn't get to play for forever cause of COVID. But what, did you get to watch this game? What were your thoughts when you saw Arkansas go on this run? I didn't chance to watch this game. I didn't even know Arkansas was down big until a couple hours after the game. I mean, this was a popular upset pick. And like you said, 15th in the country. And, um, uh, it just shows that if you're playing a stronger schedule, then you're going to have what it takes down the stretch to be a weaker opponent who may not have played the same strength of schedule as you. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Colgate got to 33 points with about, I want to say, six or seven minutes left in the game. And then Arkansas held them scoreless and went up three going into half after the 17-0 run. And I mean, it's March. Anything can happen. It's crazy. This this feels like it's not unusual, but 17-0 run was just impressive coaching, impressive uh, by all those players to come back into this one. Second thing I wanted to talk about, Purdue's Williams center. It's, it's a close game coming down the line um, against Ohio, right? They played Ohio. Purdue? Yeah. Uh, they played North Texas. North Texas. I knew they were green, the mean green. Um, and it is it is like a five-point game, and Williams pickpockets at the top of the key, dribbles the duration of the court, and then throws down an and-one dunk and puts Purdue within one possession with two minutes left. I mean, what were your thoughts on Williams this year? Um, he Purdue got rid of Harms, a grad transfer who went to BYU. He kind of had to fill in these shoes. Like, were you impressed at all with Williams' play this year at Purdue? Um, they had three freshmen starting for them, so he had a big role to play. Yeah, I mean, those were some big shoes to fill with harms. You're replacing a seven-footer, so just trying to replace that. Inside presence is always going to be a tough thing to do, especially as a freshman. As for Purdue, I didn't really hear a lot about them throughout the course of the year, and maybe that's because the Big Ten was so strong. But I just did not hear a whole lot about Purdue. They had a couple big wins that I'd see every now and then. But other than that, just not a lot. Yeah, that was one of those seedings when they came out with Purdue being a four seed. It was kind of like, uh, 
I mean, all that conference play with, I mean, night in and night out, if you were playing in the Big Ten, you basically had a chance to get a quad one win. And that helps big time with seeding if, if everyone understands how that one works. So when Purdue got that four seed, um, I was shocked, I should say. I, I don't think that's accurate seeding. I don't know if they're necessarily that high. But, yeah, this is a young team, and I'd look forward I would uh, look for them in the future as they're going to be returning a lot of young freshmen who are going to be really impressive. Uh, another impressive moment, we got the Creighton Blue Jays. Uh, you want to speak on the behalf of these guys uh, coming out and silencing some of the naysayers? Yeah, I mean, personally in my bracket, I had Ohio in the Sweet 16, and it was very impressive for Creighton to come out and silence everyone. I feel like Creighton was a popular upset pick, and they've proved multiple people wrong by first beating uh, UC Santa Barbara and then a very, very strong Ohio team. Yeah, it was, um, you know, Creighton comes down to the end of, end of the year here, um, not playing their best basketball, it appears. They did not play well in the Big East tournament. I mean, they played well. They just lost the championship to Georgetown. Yeah. And we hear all this stuff about coaching going on with, McDermott, the locker room talk, like things just don't look like they're going Creighton's way. And I knew some Creighton fans who even picked UC Santa Barbara to upset them in that first round. And they narrowly snuck out. I mean, it was a one point game. It's not like they stomped Santa Barbara and they didn't put up a good fight. But this was impressive, I think, for Creighton as a program. This is only their fourth time to make it to the Sweet 16. And I mean, testament to McDermott, testament to that team. That, that they belong to be here. And this is big for Zigorowski, I think. He had a year that was not um, what lots of people thought it would be. He didn't live up to that hype. But I think this is a time for him, if they make a run here, if they get into this Final Four and really make some noise, that it'd be a, wor a year worth talking about for Creighton, for sure. And so this last most impressive moment, I mean, Loyola beats Illinois. And one of the best exhibitions of college basketball I think anyone has seen this year your thoughts on this team. I know you had them. You talked about having them upset some teams. Just just give us your thoughts about this game that we watched. Yeah, I mean, perfect execution from Loyola Chicago on both ends of the floor. Uh, lots of people had Illinois Final Four, even champions, just a very quality and sound team. Uh, Loyola Chicago was 22nd in offensive, offensive efficiency this year and fourth in defensive efficiency. And that kind of goes with some uh, possible incorrect seating on the tournament committee's part because it's kind of it doesn't sit with me well that Illinois had to go up against probably what should have been maybe a six seed would be a good place to put them at. So I feel really bad for that Illinois team who had a heck of a year. You got multiple guys who have NBA talent in there, and I just feel bad for them. Right, so if anybody doesn't know, Loyola Chicago is in the Missouri Valley Conference, which, I mean, obviously not that notable of a conference. You have Missouri Valley, um, or that's a conference. You have Loyola Chicago, uh, Drake, Illinois State, I think Missouri State, and the only other team I can think of is Northern Iowa. But anyways... Like with a year where teams only got four to six non-conference basketball games right at the beginning of the year, I am like I am feel terrible for the committee with how they had to seed this off of. Um, I I can understand how this was a tough year to figure out seeding. Thank goodness Duke didn't make it in the tournament because that would have been an absolute joke. 
Yes. But yeah, I feel like this Loyola Illinois game should have happened. Like this is like a elite eight game. Yeah. It just, it had that element in it. And like Kofi Kokburn, Asumu, um, I can't think of the other guy who won six man of the year in big 10. Curbelo. Yep. Curbelo. I mean, all those guys, outstanding talents. Kofi Kokburn will be back. He's a sophomore. And Illinois is going nowhere. But Loyola, wow. This was impressive. This was (laughs) – I just – I was jaw-dropped the entire game. They came out with a game plan to shut down Kofi. They absolutely dismantled Io DeSumo. He had like six six turnovers, I believe. They had ten total. And it was just perfect execution from – beginning of the game to the end of the game and the high ball screens they were running and the high post movements to get Kofi Coburn off the block. That's something teams should look into when Kofi's back next year, because that was really efficient. Another impressive moment here. LSU has zero turnovers in the first half of the game against Michigan um, in the round of 32. I mean, I've never seen a stat like that before. No, that's and this was high quality basketball. Yeah, I mean zero turnovers for a half even that is insane against a good Michigan defense, a stout Michigan defense. Right. This was this is what Michigan like built their year off of was their defense supposedly and LSU comes out zero turnovers yet they were down one at half, which is just I, th- I thought that was crazy. I had to throw that in there. And then finally, Eastern Washington brothers, if anybody saw that, I'm sure they saw it all over Twitter and everything. The two brothers who were just dismantling Kansas um, combined for 57 points. And I can't remember their last name. Did you catch their last name, Grant? I wasn't watching that game. Exactly sure. Besides the fact... Really impressive stuff. 57 points for the Eastern Washington brothers. So had to give that a shout out for something really impressive there. Okay. So moving on to our next segment, this um, West Virginia, they lose round of 32 for several reasons, but there might need to be a proposal for a rule change. So Barstool Sports comes out with this article after the West Virginia game um, and it was a talk of, talking about West Virginia losing the game. And West Virginia up and down year. Bob Huggins is a great coach. Two wins away from tying Bobby Knight's record for wins in the NCAA tournament. But uh, they kind of talked about one of the dumbest rules that they say in college basketball. Grant, can you elaborate on it for everyone out there? Yeah, I mean, for those who don't know, it's where the offensive team – can get the ball in play and then call a timeout without the 10-second rule resetting. So if they have seven seconds down before they have to get it across half court, it resets all the way back to 10 instead of having three seconds to get it across. Yeah, so late in this game, um, West Virginia gets almost holds um, – oh, I'm blanking. Um, who did they play? Syracuse. Syracuse, yep. So they almost hold Syracuse to a 10-second call. And then Boheim calls a timeout, and I think the ref was at 8 seconds. And then Syracuse gets to bring the ball back in again, and then they have 10 more seconds to get the ball over half court. Which, I mean, I hate. Nothing's worse than when you see a team play lockdown defense 
for eight seconds, and then they just the offensive team just gets to bail out with a timeout. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's your stance on this rule? Do you think this needs to be looked at by the NCAA, or, or are you for it? even aware this was a problem until I read this article. And, I mean, it just, it's rewarding bad offense not being able to get the ball across half and not rewarding good defense. Like, stopping the ball before half court within 10 seconds, that's really good lockdown defense, and it should be rewarded properly. Right. Lots of people, I mean, even want the rule change. NBA is an eight-second call. Um, 10 seconds is a long time to get the ball across half court. Like, if a team holds you for eight seconds and then you just get a bailout with a timeout. Yeah. I can understand why Barstool is writing an article about this because I think some attention needs to be brought to it. And I don't think very many people even know this is a rule. I had known only last year because of a game where this had happened and the commentators were talking about it. Uh, Jay Billis was very adamant, I think, about getting this rule changed. But just something to bring light to. Really interesting um, how this could be a potential rule that we might see change, this 10-second rule with it being reset after a timeout. Speaking of things getting changed, big movement going on right now um, for a couple of college athletes. Initially started, I believe, by Geo Baker. And then Jordan Bohannon and Isaiah Livers kind of hopped on this. And this is the not NCAA property, which is a really interesting movement that I'm going to elaborate on here in a second. The not NCAA property movement, um, from as far as I am informed, when you are an NCAA athlete, you sign what is called a student athlete statement. Every division, I remember I had to do this when I was playing golf. There's a meeting. Usually the school AD sits down with all the athletes and you go through this this folder, this packet, all the stuff you need to know. But one of the things you sign is a student athlete statement. And basically, if an athlete does not sign this statement, they are not eligible to play NCAA sports. However, if they do sign it, they consent to all of the following rules and bylaws that the NCAA has created. One of these rules and bylaws uh, governs a player's name, image, and likeness. NIL is what they'll call it. And lots of people, not lots, but some college athletes find this very annoying. And they want to rebel against this, the NCAA having jurisdiction over your name, image, and likeness if you're an NCAA athlete. So basically... Under Rule 12.5.1.1.1, the NCAA may use an athlete's name or picture of an enrolled student athlete to generally promote NCAA events, activities, or programs. So they can use it to advertise commercials. They can use it to advertise men's basketball. Like The NCAA tournament is mostly where people get all riled up about this because it makes the NCAA lots of money. So then rule 12.5.1.1.2 also says educational or nonprofit organizations may use the appearance, may use the, excuse me, the appearance name or picture of an enrolled student athlete to promote generally its fundraising activities. So again, they have a student's name, image, and likeness to promote funding for themselves, um, Basically, it just grants NCAA rights to use an athlete to generate money for them. 
So what's the big deal? This has been going on for decades now, since the NCAA started. Well, basically, what people are realizing is NCAA makes lots of revenue off these kids, off their name, image, and likeness. And because of this, student-athletes are mad. And there are two more bylaws that state, bylaw 12.4.4, that an athlete may be self-employed as long as their name, image, or likeness to promote their company is not being used. All other students can do this who are not NCAA athletes. You can use your, you can go start a YouTube channel and make a bunch of money and you can use your name. You can use uh, what you're famous for. Like you can grow popularity if you're a really good cook and you start a YouTube channel. But you can't do it if you're an NCAA athlete. And another law is by law 12.4.2, which talks about coaching. And basically it says, an athlete can coach kids if they want to. They can't get paid for it, but they also can't use their name, image, or likeness to promote their camps. So they can't use their name to promote their camps, can't use their image, or they can't use the publicity they get for their for their sport or whatever. So recently, there's been lots of movements. Isaiah Liver's been wearing shirts to the games that say, not NCAA property. Joe Baker's been tweeting about it. Jordan Bohannon's been speaking about it on a podcast, The Standpoint. And all of this is really, really interesting. It's causing lots of debate. You can go on Twitter right now and type in the hot hashtag not NCAA property and see several stories from athletes. And basically, what these athletes are saying is, we just want equal rights that other students have that are not NCAA athletes. We want to be able to make money off a YouTube channel because we are famous for playing basketball. I mean, what's your stance on this, Grant? I know it's a lot to, to understand, and if you're not very informed in it, it's hard to understand. But if you can understand the concept of the name, image, and likeness, if you can understand that when the students sign a student-athlete statement, the NCAA then takes that and says, as long as you're an NCAA athlete, you can't have this because we get it. Yeah. I mean, what do you think? I wasn't that informed on this issue, like I knew about the name, image, and likeness part of it. But I think it's just really good that these guys, Livers, Baker, and Bohannon, that they're all standing up. They're all standing up for what they believe in, and that's one of the first steps in getting anything changed or getting a better deal for these athletes to where they can profit off their uh, name, image, or likeness. Yeah, and so, like, here's the problem. So you have guys who work for CBS, and I can't remember his name in general, but he's very strongly against this. And he says, basically to the point where his stance is, um, you're a student athlete, shut up and dribble. And lots of them don't like that because they say, well, we're more than an athlete. Just because we signed this sheet, you think you can tell us to shut up and dribble? Well, it's a two-way street because, one, these CBS sports reporters are only making money because these college athletes are playing basketball and providing entertainment, providing television networks, providing more jobs, while also NCAA athletes have to recognize that if they do step up against this and the NCAA doesn't go with them, what's going to happen? How many athletes have to get on board with this to actually make this a successful not NCAA property? And right now, all I know is these three guys who have really yeah. stepped out and said, yeah. 
we're going to take a stance on this. Um, I don't know. I'm torn on it. I, I understand where they're coming from, but part of what everybody really likes about college sports is it's about the college. It's about the university. It's about the team. Where professional sports, that's where you get to talk about your name, your contract you just signed, your agent. Like Basically, if this gets changed, you're going to see college athletes having having agents using all this publicity to start commercials. I mean, you might see like Isaiah livers on a subway commercial, like who knows? And they'll be making money off that. I understand that college, like college athletes work their tails off for the university and what they get in return. Often an argument is, well, they get an education, they get their education paid for. And that is true. I, I, that is awesome that you get most students get a free education. Now, if you're a walk-on, you also have to sign these agreements. So it's not the same stance there. It's different. But I don't know. It's really interesting to think about when, if this is going to happen, how are college sports going to change? Like, how are programs going to change? Are players going to start to just go to programs where they can make a name for themselves, where they can use their name, image, and likeness to get more money. I mean, I don't know. I don't I don't know if I have a stance on it yet. I need to read into it more. But, yeah, I just wanted to talk about this a little bit because I think we're going to be seeing it a lot here um, after the tournament. Yeah. Okay. One final section here. Well, before we're going to take it or leave it, we're going to talk about one final section here. And that is, um, we've already kind of touched on them, but Sister Jean and Loyola are not going anywhere. Cameron Crutwig might be one of the more impressive players we saw um, over these la- this last weekend. And I don't know, I, I want to hear your stance on these guys, Grant. We talked a little bit about them, but... Well, yeah. Yeah, just go for it. I think these guys, they're very well coached, as we saw from the game plan that they put together against Illinois. And we kind of touched on it earlier. Illinois, really good team, like five or six NBA caliber players. So for them to be able to do that against that team, it was just 40 minutes of perfect basketball, and it was fun to watch. And it wasn't even Illinois making mistakes like playing a bad game, like Loyola was forcing these mistakes. They were wreaking havoc on Illinois. And I just think, how good do you think these guys are? Like how deep do you actually see these guys going? I am confident that they can beat Oregon State despite Oregon State's hot shooting recently. And then after that, they would get – Are they in that side with Houston? No, that would be Michigan. Michigan's in the side with Houston. Um, Loyola would play. They're not in Gonzaga's side. They were by West Virginia and Oklahoma. That was their side, but they're both out now. So yeah, whoever beat them. With, uh, Syracuse and Houston. Syracuse, yeah. I mean, you're looking at a possible 8-11 matchup in the Elite Eight, which I don't know if that has ever happened in the history of the tournament. At least I can't think of one time an 8-11 and 11 met in the Elite Eight. 
So that would be something. When did um, Loyola meet Kansas State? Uh, Or what seed was Kansas State? Were they a nine? Kansas State was a nine. They beat UMBC in the round of 32, I believe. Yeah, they would have beat them in the round of 32. Okay. I was trying to remember because that was the last time Loyola played in this tournament. They played a high seed and beat them. But yeah, I don't know. 8-11 probably hasn't happened in the... You're talking about Elite 8, right? Elite 8. Yeah, that's probably... We'd have to dig through the history book to find something like that to happen. Yeah. But yeah, this what I what I think is most important is Cameron Crutwig. Teams now going up against him. You got to get this guy in foul trouble. He is averaging thirty four minutes per game, which all thirty four minutes are huge for Loyola. Mm-hmm. He is basically their entire offense. If he's not scoring, his assist is what's he's leading the next score with an assist or he's setting a screen that's fundamental for. It's either a flare screen for another player to hit a three. Um, I mean, he he literally is everywhere on the floor. And defensively, he's nothing crazy, but that's intentional. I think they use him only enough to make sure he stays out of foul trouble. Um, he re- he rarely contested Kofi. They would just double down on him and try to get him before he could even shoot. Yeah. So if your team, if you're Oklahoma State going into this game, you have to be thinking about how you can get Crutwig into foul trouble. And if he's not going to play defense, you got to take it right at him until he gets into foul trouble and is forced to play defense. Okay, finally here, final section, take it or leave it. We're talking about the Elite Eight, ranking the final teams who are left. Um, Grant, I want to know, let's start with who are you leaving? Who are your bottom four teams left in the bracket as of now? If you had to pick from this bracket, who are you leaving? Teams you just don't see winning or advancing after this? My bottom four would be Oregon State and UCLA, which are two not very controversial picks. And then I also have Houston and Michigan included in there because of some key players' injuries that could affect how the team is able to flow and potentially score points on the offensive and before take me through Oregon state here. Um, not like you said, not controversial. Lots of people are taking Oregon state to lose because of they're playing Loyola Chicago, but why else? I mean, this Oregon state team has been just absolutely on fire ever since the PAC 12 tournament, just tearing their way through that bracket. And the threat of regression is just something that really needs to be thought of. They've been shooting the ball, at an absolutely outrageous rate. I think their last game, it was really close to 50% from three, and that's also been the mark since this crazy run. So I think that at some point or another, they're going to have to take a step backwards, and I see that being against the good defense of Loyola Chicago. All right, now take me through UCLA here, because UCLA has been going on a tear as well um, since they won their playing game. So, yeah, let's hear it. I mean, this team, they already played three games. Don't forget, they also had to play a first four game against Michigan State, which they were down 14 at one point, I believe. Yeah, went to OT, right? Yeah. So fatigue for these guys 
it has to set in at some point. I mean, they're playing one more game than the other teams that have made it to this point. And this is their first real test in the tournament so far. I mean, they went up against a subpar, substandard Michigan State a BYU team, which not many people knew a lot about. It's just the loss to Gonzaga is mostly all we've heard of them this year. And a good story team, the 14 seed, Abilene Christian, which they blew out. So we can't really tell exactly how good they are. Right. What would you say to someone who would argue with you and say, since UCLA has played three games, they're better prepared than any other team here? I mean, they they argue, you know, we've had almost a whole week off now. They're not really going to be fatigued. They're not playing until Saturday or even Sunday. I didn't look at when UCLA is playing. But, yeah, what, what do you say to them? Yeah, I think that's a very fair argumentative point. And just the atmosphere of March Madness is just different than the regular season. I mean, these games, they really take it out of the players. you got to be at your at the very top of your game in order to make the Sweet 16 even. So at this point, I think that fatigue will hit this team, and I think they will ultimately end up losing to – they play Alabama. I yeah, believe. they play Alabama, the two seed. So yeah. tough matchup. I would uh, – yeah, Alabama is going to be a tough contest for them for sure. Um, and that game is on the 28th. So anyways – Houston, you said, was your second team yeah. that you're not riding with. And I had um, Kyle Ott on here earlier, way back before they even had the tournament um, bracket out, even before they had Champ Week. We were doing a Champ Week preview. And he said, do not sleep on Houston. He was claiming lots of people were sleeping on Houston. This is a really successful team. They end up getting a two seed, which most people weren't talking about them. Why do you why do you see him being done? I mean, the biggest thing that I see, and you could even see it in their last game, was that their star player, the best player on their team, Dijon Giroux, he's injured. Like it's something with his hip planner, I believe, and the coach of Houston, uh, Kelvin Sampson. He says he hopes to have him at seventy to seventy five percent. When I was watching their last game, the announcers said he was having a big hip planner issue and that he was unable to sprint without sharp pain in his hip. So I don't know if this week off will help him any or not get more rested and prepared for the next game. But with that injury just looming over that team, I do not like Houston at all. Yeah, this is like an interesting matchup, Houston versus Syracuse, because Syracuse comes off of a three-point win against West Virginia, and Houston also comes off of a three-point win against Rutgers. And Buddy Beheim might be the hottest player from behind the arc right now. Yes. I mean, the guy is striping it. He's shooting just under 50%. Is that correct? Yeah. I was going to say, I saw that stat the other day. That is that is unheard of. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, that's, that's good observations there you've done looking into this Houston team. I'd be interested to see what some other people are thinking. What about here with Michigan? I mean, it's the threat of livers being out. I mean, we've already seen them win two games, one against, I believe, Texas Southern, which is a 16 seed, and the other against a solid LSU team, which we saw the better team prevail in the second half. But livers being out for the tournament just really poses a big threat for the offense to that team. 
throughout the year, they've kind of ran the offense through him. And just the fact that they just survived and advanced against LSU, I guess, I think that team will be in bad shape when they play. Who does, who does Michigan play? They'll again? be playing Florida State. Florida. And so, yeah, I'm going to counter you here because um, – I'm obviously a Michigan fan, so I've seen a lot of basketball this year. But um, it definitely hurts to have Isaiah Livers out this year. Um, he was out a majority of last year with a groin injury, started to come back right before the tournament, and things were looking up for us. Um, but with him being out so much last year, um, Eli Brooks has stepped up as a player on the floor. And if you watch the LSU game, Eli Brooks hit five threes, five for nine. Um, and also, Shaunsey Brown stepped up and hit had a career game, 19 points. And these are two guys who I think are not afraid to fill the shoes of Isaiah livers. I think Eli Brooks is the X factor when he's on the floor. Chauncey Brown, when he was on the floor, Michigan was plus 22 against LSU, which is insane. That's like, um, Johnny Trueblood stats for Nebraska when he was on the floor there for that year. Um, but yeah, I'm going to counter you here. I think Florida state has built their legacy this year off of a fraud. Um, I'm not too afraid of that. Now, Michigan playing Alabama, very interesting game. Alabama's driven offensively, um, and it'll look a lot like the LSU game, I think. Alabama plays a similar style to LSU. Um, but, yeah, I don't think we're going to see Michigan come out yet because of the coaching of Jawan Howard as well. Excellent coach. Um, I, I just don't see that. But I want you to analyze my bottom four here that I'm saying you should leave behind because these teams, a few of them feel obvious. The other ones I think will be interesting. First of all, I am dropping Oregon. Oregon played one game game against an Iowa team that ranks 122nd in defensive efficiency. They dropped 96, 97, yep. 96 points against Iowa and dismantled them while Iowa's three starters, McCaffrey, CJ, and Bohannon all averaged or all, all accumulated a total of zero points in that game. I am not sold on Oregon. USC dismantled Kansas. Oregon will come into this game underprepared, not playing against VCU, not being able to play in the Pac-12 championship because of the COVID regulations. This is an Oregon team that has a mess waiting for them when they're playing USC. I just see it being tragic. Second one, I think Villanova is going to get stomped by Baylor. Villanova is without Colin Gillespie, which we've been talking about all tournament. I took Winthrop to be Villanova early on anyways. But Baylor is on one right now. Mitchell, their guard, number 45, who is Donovan Mitchell's long-lost brother, I still believe, is just careering. Vitell is finding his way in the paint. It's all looking good. Now, it's hard to, to go against Jay Wright in March. He's such an excellent coach. But I do see Baylor beating Villanova and Villanova saying goodbye in the Sweet 16. Another one, Oral Roberts. Absolute Cinderella, a 15 seed who's still alive. Um, I don't see this Cinderella story lasting any longer. The clock's about to strike midnight, and their their slippers not there anymore. It, it's going to be over for Earl Roberts, but it's an awesome story, one to look to. And then my other one is, I am not sold on Oregon State, and you had this one as well, so I'm going to have to agree with you there. But uh, yeah, what's your stance on those four that that I got there? Solid picks. Yeah, I mean. I kind of like Oral Roberts to at least make it a close game against Arkansas, who's kind of had a relatively easy path, even though they only beat Texas Tech by two. Yeah, 66-68. Oregon to keep that game close. You got two Pac-12 opponents playing against each other. 
but they kind of know each other's play styles already. I think that'll be potentially one of the best games of the tournament. Wow, bull take. Well, Altman, out of uh, Crete, Nebraska, the Oregon coach, kind of cool for anyone out there who didn't know, a Nebraska guy, head coach of Oregon. So that's cool. Who are you taking, though, Grant? Who are your four that you see moving on big time um, in this tournament that could potentially be Final Four threats? The four teams that I like a lot in the Sweet 16 is USC, Syracuse, Alabama, and Baylor. Okay, let me think here. So I'm with you on USC. Um, Break it down for me. Why are you so sold on them? I mean, as we saw against Kansas, they just completely shut them down on the defensive end. Only 51 points put up for Kansas. They run an elite fast break, and the Mobley brothers are just something else. They are the X factor for them coming down the stretch here. If they play well, I could see a final four run from them, even beating Gonzaga. Yeah, USC is an interesting one. Not a lot of teams have film on USC um, this year. They didn't play too many games in the Pac-12. And they also were like an unexpected sixth seed. Uh, Pac-12 slept themselves this year um, all the way to the tournament, and now they've got four teams in the Sweet 16. USC, Oregon, UCLA, and Oregon State. Four teams. That's impressive for the Pac-12. Second team, you got Syracuse. And let's hear it. Let's hear it. You know, I'm finally going to buy in the Buddy Bayheim here, especially with the Houston roster that has been hurting. And I think this zone will continue to give opponents problems. Not a lot of teams see a zone throughout the year, and Syracuse runs it to perfection, which is a main reason why they have such success on the defensive end of the floor. I, yeah, that zone is – I saw a pretty good meme of Syracuse's zone. It looked like there's 20 defenders on the floor. Yeah. But it's yeah. – it's yeah, Division One basketball. Not a ton of teams run the zone. Um, Alabama, though. You're sold on Alabama here? Yeah, I like this Alabama team a lot. I mean, they're a very good offensive team. And also on the defensive side of the floor, they're very good as well. There were a lot of people saying that Maryland game would have been a lot closer than it was. And Alabama kind of silenced those saying that they were overrated by blowing them out. I think they won by like 15 at least. Yeah, it was 19 is how much they won by. It was a big win. Al- Alabama's their good team. They Not a lot of people talked about them. Um, yeah. They've they've really got it sold on the offensive end of the floor. Last team you took was Baylor. Yeah, I mean, Baylor, you kind of touched on it earlier. It seems like they're peaking at the right time, prime for a Final Four run. They're a great offensive and also a defensive team with vital down low. So I'm just really sold on Baylor and them potentially making a Final Four run and maybe even getting to the national championship. Yeah, they were an early preseason favorite, and they've they've held strong uh, throughout the entire year. Here's who I'm taking. Who here's who I am definitely sold on. First off, I'm sold on Creighton. I think we're going to see Gonzaga lose finally. Creighton, um, they've finally made it to the Sweet 16. First time in, I believe it's been almost 50 years that they've made it to the Final Four. I was sold on Creighton very early on in this year. Very early on, I thought this is a team that's going to be great. I thought it was going to be Zygorowski's breakout year in the Big East. Uh, Marcus Howard was gone. It was it was Zygorowski's show. 
they didn't perform very well. I wasn't amazed. They lost to Kansas by one. Zagorowski ended up missing a uh, game-tying free throw. And then Kansas started to get dismantled as a program this year. And I was like, wow, this Creighton team is not what I thought they would be. I wasn't sold on them in the Big East tournament after Georgetown. I wasn't even necessarily sold on them after they beat UCSB by one. But now I'm sold. After watching that Ohio game, I, I saw it again. I saw Creighton's firepower. I saw Mitch Ballack hit those deep threes. I saw Zagorowski play a solid game. I saw Jefferson play his intense defense. Mahoney was in there taking good, smart shots. And the whole time, McDermott was there being a great coach, leading him the whole way. I think this is a game that Gonzaga is not prepared for. They haven't had a team that could hang on to the three ball this solid. I think Suggs is a great player. Timmy's a great player. But but Creighton's going to have one of those electrifying nights like we saw them in the Big East regular season finish last year against Seton Hall. One of the best games of the year last year. If you, if you can't remember, watch it again on YouTube because it was electrifying. And I think this is a Creighton team we're going to see against Gonzaga. Second, I'm taking Michigan over Florida State. I'm biased, but Florida State is nothing special this year. Um, I don't think they're going to be able to stop Dickinson. That's going to open up the available kickout three. I think you're going to see Brooks knock down threes, and it's really important for Franz Wagner to have a good game. He's kind of an X factor. He takes either really good shots or really bad shots, and if he's not knocking them down, they're costly. But I think spreading the floor is going to be important for Michigan. Next, I'm also going to be pretty sold on Loyola Chicago. I think this is a team we could see in the Final Four. I have not seen a team play complete 40 minutes of basketball like they have um, this year. I don't think I've seen a game that complete other than Gonzaga over in the West Coast Conference playing no-namers. Uh, this this was legit. They have an easy win, I think, against Oregon State. And Syracuse or Houston will give them, give them a heck, but I'm sold on Loyola Chicago making a run. And then also, I, I have to take this USC team. You talked about it already. These Mobley brothers are absolute X-factors. They're kind of coming out of nowhere. It's just prime for one of those tournament runs, and, and I think it's going to be really special. Grant, it was a pleasure having you on this episode of Take It or Leave It. I'm glad we could talk about some of this this awesome stuff happening in March. Now, just to get it on record, I know there are only 16 teams left, but who do you have winning it all um, so we can go back to this track and see if you were right? You know... There's only three or four teams remaining that I think have an actual shot to win it all, being Gonzaga, Baylor, Alabama, and I'd even throw UCS, USC in there as well. But I really like this Alabama team to make a deep run and even win the championship. That's You heard it here, everybody. Grant Case is taking Alabama to win it all. There's only 16 teams left, so he's got a much better chance than Jaden last week taking UCSB. Man, what what a pick by Jaden. Regardless, um, Grant, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for talking a little bit of basketball with me. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Everyone out there, this is Dalton Mogul signing out from Take It or Leave It here. Thank you, and good night.